We're back, everybody. I'm Carly Knight. And I'm Sabrina Monet. And this is Procrastination Planet. Where we should be writing, but... Today we're going to be talking about books that have made us laugh. But first, let's get some housekeeping out of the way. If you like our show, make sure you subscribe and download. If you're on iTunes or Stitcher, give us a five-star rating and a brief review. And that way it'll help push us up the charts for random searchers who want to look for nifty podcasts. If you're already doing those things, we adore you. We thank you. Keep sharing links out to your social media and let them discover us via your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram posts, etc. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon up and running now. Go to procrastinationplanet.com and click the link that says donate and that'll take you to the Patreon page. Another way to support us would be to click the merch button at procrastinationplanet.com because we now have logo merch available. So to follow us on social media, we are Procrast Planet on Twitter, Procrastination Planet on Facebook, and Procrastination Planet Podcast on Instagram. Woohoo! On the Iggy. On the Iggy, yes. We need to make Iggy happen. Yeah. <laughs> and now on with the show. Okay, today we're going to be talking about some books that we found hilarious. And of course, this is by no means an exhaustive list. I mean, if we did that, then our episode would be like hardcore history or something, yeah. like a five-hour podcast. We might do a part two electric boogaloo if we need to, but we're just going to talk about a handful of books that we found funny. Did you want to start it off, Sabrina? Sure. Um, I loved Native Tongue by uh, Carl Hyacin. Mm. I've seen the title before, but I've read so many of his books that I can't remember if that's one I've read or if that's one that has skipped my notice. So I... um. I like this one because the back cover was hilarious. It's a guy driving home when he sees someone litter. And from there, he follows the person home. And after he follows him home, he finds out who it is and basically tracks that person down. And it just so happened he turned out to be a really bad guy. And mm. it was the catalyst for other things happening throughout the novel. But what I liked about it, the bad guys didn't have to stay bad guys. They could redeem themselves and become good guys too. Oh, cool. So, I like that about his stories, that he gives everyone a chance to sort of improve. Yeah, I love how over the top he goes with, like, his villains. Yeah. There was one villain, I seem to recall that he had a repeat appearance in another book, or maybe I'm just imagining, but um, there was one guy, somehow his hand got cut off, and then he replaced it with, like, a weed whacker, <laughs> and he starts murdering people with it. Oh, my gosh. And... I love the fact that, well, he's from South Florida. Yeah. And he started off as a reporter. The stories he's heard. Exactly. And the stories that he writes, the fictional ones, they almost pale in comparison to the actual Florida headlines. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, we have the whole, oh, my God, that's Florida for you. Even though with Florida, I think like all those criminal reports, they just get reported sooner. Yeah. So it's not really a case of Florida has more wacky shit. It's just it gets released to the press a lot sooner. Gotcha. But still, I'm going to make Florida jokes. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not sorry. Okay, we might offend some Florida listeners. Sorry to the ones we offended. You're probably not one of those headline people. So Sorry, Tallahassee. To, yeah, there's nothing to be offended about. Oh, I think it was Tallahassee license plate. That's um, slang for um, tramp stamp. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I think it was Tallahassee license plate, if I remember correctly. But... 
One of the things I do like about his books, it's like um, someone is just telling you like a wacky yarn over a couple of beers or something. Yeah. And I think that's why he gets away with that omniscient point of view. Sometimes it borders on kind of a head hoppy sort of point of view where he's going from one character to another, to another, to another, to another. And in the wrong hands, that sort of narrative device gets really dizzying. Because we don't need to be in every single character's head in every single scene, every single second of the book. We don't need that. But when handled properly, Omniscient Point of View works. And since he's kind of going for the telling a wacky yarn over beer, the Omniscient sort of works. Because when you're just telling a story, you don't have to be in super close point of view. Yeah. You don't have to do it like a movie where the camera is over the shoulder of a particular character all the time. Yeah. But you were saying, um, not you were saying, you actually said you read a lot of Carl Hyacin books. Oh, yeah. Which one was your favorite? I have quite a few. The one that got me started was, um, it was Skinny Dip. Nice. Yeah, it took me a second. Lucky You was the second one I read. Ah. Skinny Dip is where the main character, her husband, tries to kill her by throwing her overboard a cruise ship. Yeah. Turns out she's a champion swimmer. Oh, for, no. A former champion. Yeah. She swims to safety. Well, she swims to like this bale of marijuana that's floating in the sea. Wow. And then she kind of floats on that to safety. Yeah. And then she starts to fuck with her husband because she knows what he did. It's like, I didn't get killed. Sorry, but I'm going to fuck with you. Exactly. So she sneaks into the house and she starts like doing the sleeping with the enemy thing (gasps) where she's rearranging shit. Oh, no. And just fucking with him. And I'm like, okay, I like this author. And then I picked up Lucky You. Oh, okay. And two people win the lottery ticket. That's what starts it off. And the first lottery winner, she goes by her numbers that she always uses. And she happens to be a black woman. And then these two, like, rednecky white supremacist types, they did a quick pick and it's the same numbers. Same numbers, wow. And they discover who the other winner is. So they kidnap her and they want to take the ticket and have the winnings. And it's a startup white supremacy group. Oh, no. Yeah. And the guy who wants to be the leader, he's a white supremacist, but he can't say the N-word. So he always has to use, like, old-timey substitutes. And the guy he's trying to recruit, he's always dunking on him for that. And the guy he wants to call the group White Aryan Brotherhood. But it turns out this rap group took the name ironically for their own CD. Oh, no. And so they can't use that. Well, the backstory for the guy who can't say the N-word, he said it once as a kid and his mom washed his mouth out with Ajax. Oh. If your kid says the N-word with the hard R... And they're doing it to be racist fuckwits and not because they're parroting what racist grandpa said. If they're parroting what racist grandpa said, you give them a talking to. But if they're doing it because they want to be racist fuckwits on purpose, wash their mouth out with Comet or Ajax. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm condoning washing a racist kid's mouth out with Ajax. Not sorry. But hijinks ensue from there. You know, I've been picking up more and more of his books. Nature Girl wasn't so great and Razor Girl wasn't as great as well. I think he needs to not put girl in his titles. Maybe that's what it is. That's the bad luck. Yeah, I think that's the jinx. But if those were the first two books I'd picked up, then I would have been like, eh, he's okay. Yeah. But the rest of his books, they're a pretty solid, funny read. I think I've said all I can say about the subject without rambling. (laughs) (laughs) So Carl Hyacin, we both like him. That's awesome. Yeah, highly recommended. Who else do you have on the list? I've got Samantha Irby. Yes, you are You are a fan of hers. I am very much a fan of hers. I have her book, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. I've sung her praises in other episodes before, but she used to have the blog, Bitches Gotta Eat. Yes. That one's kind of defunct because she's now going on to actual paid work. And I think good for her. I'm glad she's getting paid. 
So anyway, her um, her blog, now she does it in newsletter format. So you can sign up for her newsletter. And I think she does it on like a monthly basis, which reminds me, we need to start up a newsletter. What I like about her writing is she's able to talk about like really uncomfortable topics. You know, she talks about, you know, both of her parents have died. They died when she was young. No, her mom died when she was young. Her dad passed away while she, I think she was a young adult when that happened. She had a really rough upbringing. She struggles with Crohn's disease. And I think she's got arthritis as well. But she doesn't delve into pathos with it. Yeah. She's able to look with humor at all of her circumstances without being overly flippant. And when she does get more serious when she discusses the harder topics, she doesn't make it sound like misery porn. But like Samantha Irvy, I am aggressively indoorsy. That's because the sun likes to give me cancer. (sighs) I may have tweeted about it before. But I feel like if anyone ever wants to spit white supremacy doctrine, they can enjoy their skin cancer. I can show them all of my biopsy scars and all of my surgical excision scars and be like, you're not superior because of your white skin. Go fuck yourself. So there's that. But she has an essay in um, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life called A Case for Remaining Indoors. (laughs) Let's see. She has her pros and cons. If I went outside, I could... Suffer through an awkward conversation with someone who lives in this neighborhood. Someone I now will be forced to avoid until the end of time. On the flip side, in my apartment, I can't look at people outside without having to smell them or listen to their opinions. Organize my catch-ups. And then she's got an essay called, Fuck it, bitch, stay fat. (laughs) And that's the title to a blog post that's way, way, way in the archives. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how you're kind of searching for the perfect diet, but you're also looking for that diet that gives you permission to eat whatever the fuck you want and do as little exercise as possible and then magically get thin without lipo or anything like that. The miracle diet. And so her response was, Fuck it, bitch. Stay fat. And sorry, you're going to say something. Oh, no. I was just saying the magic pill is just having enough money to do the surgery. I know. And do the surgery without dying from the anesthesia. I know. Right? That's the scary part. Yeah. You know, I kind of want to get rid of my tummy pooch, but also I kind of want to outlive my enemies. And see, the anesthesia, it's like I got to save that up for a case, you know, heart valve replacement or something like that where it's important. (laughs) Because I think it's not like nine lives. Lady Luck, how many times do you think she gives you to survive anesthesia? Because, you know, there's cataract surgery. Mm. There's um, heart valve replacement. There's bypass. Ah, fuck. I got to think of all these things. I know. So it's like, I think the people who have plastic surgery are the ones who know wholeheartedly the other three things will never touch them so they can take a chance (laughs) (laughs) on the lipo and stuff. Yeah. I know I said that um, Fuck It Bitch, Stay Fat was in her blog. And she does have a couple of essays that um, were in the blog, but they've been kind of revised and whatnot. But she doesn't do the thing where she just copy pastes her whole blog into a book and then here, buy my stuff. She changes it. Yeah. Yeah. And she has enough new material in there, too, that it's worth the cost of the book. Gotcha. But she is hilarious. You need to read her stuff. I have pre-ordered all of her books. I did that when Meaty first came out. And I did that when We Are Never Meeting in Real Life came out. And I think she's got a book that's coming out pretty soon. 
And I got to pre-order that. Very cool. Yeah. So what's next on your list? Diabetes with Owls, David Sedaris. Ah. Um, I think I've read all his work, mm-hmm. but the story I gravitate to in this particular book is the Halloween story. Hmm. So he's a kid. He has weird neighbors who are homeschooled. Um, they we're mis- not insulting people who are homeschooled. Yes, we're totally, we're not. Um, they no, we mi- are. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they missed Halloween. So they come over to his house and his mom's like, well, share your candy. He goes to get his candy. And the minute he gets to his room, he starts to unwrap all of them and stuff them into his mouth. So he doesn't have to share. That's how his mom finds him in his room, trying to gobble up all his candy. So she drags him out there and forces him to give a portion of his candy to all the neighbor's kids mm. so that they could all have something. You think it's a teachable moment? But from that point forward, he just hated his neighbors. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So I love stuff like that. The things that are supposed to make you a better, bigger person. And you miss the lesson and just look at life the way you want to. I remember reading um, Naked. Yeah. His book, Naked. And he's talking about his OCD. Oh, yeah. God, I read it and it was super relatable. I think I may have had... I mean, people make jokes at me that I have OCD because I kind of like to make things perfectly centered and (laughs) like I have my cup on the coaster and I'm always trying to make sure there's the same margin of space. Yeah, but he had this thing where he had to like lick every fifth mailbox or something like that (gasps) or like touch every other um, like sidewalk block or something. Oh, He had kind of those little rituals he had to do. Gotcha. And I had a thing where if I touched something with my right hand, I would have to touch it with my left hand, too. I had to have symmetry with um, if would, I touched something. The earth would be unbalanced and we yeah. would capsize. I get you. Then I'm like, oh, my God, my hand is untouched. I need to touch that a second time. And I'm afraid I've said too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally get it. Yeah. Now I just have plain old boring anxiety. <laughs> But his writing is so relatable. Yeah. And I love the fact that he's able to take mundane things and kind of mine it for the funny. Oh, yeah. I think I'd mentioned that in one of our episodes, too. And by the way, I got compared to David Sedaris in one of my classes. Oh, very cool. Yeah, we had to do a memoir. It was a memoir essay assignment. And... I kind of wrote about my own experience growing up evangelical. Uh huh. You know, the whole thing about Veronica not feeling saved and whatnot. Well, that was kind of based on something that for real happened to me. But the thing is, I couldn't hide behind a fictional character. Okay, so in trying to find something to write for the memoir, it's like either A, I'd have to write something that's super triggering. I'm thinking, okay, I don't feel safe enough to share that with the class. And I'm like, oh my God, I need an adult. I don't need to do this. Then in my whole quest to suppress like the really bad fuck shit in my life, I've managed to suppress the really good shit too. And then like all of my other landmark moments, the ones that are like positive and whatnot, I feel like they're too boring or I feel like they're too pleasant to um, make for interesting memoir fodder. Okay. Because the whole tension thing, you got to have a little bit of tension. Shut up, Dave. And (laughs) (laughs) I had to work that in there. So I was struggling to find something that was going to be interesting enough for the memoir, but not triggering. You said your baptism story? Uh, Not the baptism story, but the getting saved. The getting saved. And not feeling like it took. So the holy water burned you, didn't it? Well, I was trying to keep that a secret, Sabrina. <laughs> but spoiler alert, the holy water burned me. Jeez. <laughs> but um, I thought back to um, Confessions of a Failed Preacher's Daughter. Yes. Just that scene where she's praying to get Jesus into her heart and she doesn't feel like it took. And I'm like, oh, I think I could do that. 
But I didn't want to go copy pasting that chapter in there because number one, I'm not Veronica. Two, I don't feel like that would be very kosher. Gotcha. So I just kind of took like what was at the core of it. And I had to write the real life thing. I had to take all the fiction out of it and write my real life experiences around it. Yeah. So I had to write in some real life background stuff like um, those freaky ass um, Mike Warnke anti-Halloween records we had to listen to in sixth grade. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Okay. In sixth grade, one of my friends and I, we were just starting to get boy crazy. And we were also into John Bon Jovi and his frosted hair. And one of my friends, well, she had like a tiger beat cutout of him, like pasted onto her binder. And then our teacher was like, that's way too secular. You really shouldn't have that on there. Yet at the same time with these um, Mike Warnke records that we had to listen to. Okay, this guy was supposedly a satanic high priest before giving his life over to Christ. And, wow. Oh my God, I got to start linking to some of these videos. Yes. That's going to be some bonus content. He talks in like graphic detail about the sacrifices that they were participating in. Wow. Like baby sacrifices, animal sacrifices, like just this horrific shit. And yet having John Bon Jovi on your binder was inappropriate. Wow. Yeah. Also, I, you know, I kind of mentioned the um, Thief in the Night movies we had to watch about the rapture. <laughs> They're like these. Um, this is before the Left Behind trilogy going on. Okay. This was um, like grainy 70s. Like, grindhouse quality films. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, the girls in there looked like Manson followers and shit. Like, they had, like, the stringy hair and... The Britney hair. Yeah. Not even the Britney hair. No, Britney had shiny hair. Britney's hair was shiny. Shiny, shiny. Okay. But it was just, like, that Manson realness. Yeah. And those movies fucking terrified me. So, I was kind of talking about that. Then I was kind of talking about um, Patrick Swayze getting me through puberty. <laughs> and then um, all this other stuff. Because I'm kind of going through my memory, like, revolving around my friends who'd already gotten saved. Like, one of my friends. Like, she had to be, like, on her knees in front of her mom and confessing all of her sins. And crying a bunch. And I was terrified of that. I'm like, oh my God, am I going to have to do all this in front of my grandma? Am I going to have to read like 10 Bible verses and then like talk about all of my sins? Oh my gosh. Like the couple times I five finger discounted a candy bar or sorry, grandma. I was a kid. Okay. This is like decades ago. I think I'm going to be absolved of this by now. No. Or like the times I was listening after Patrick Swayze because um, like the Hungry Eyes video was playing on VH1 a bunch and Patrick Swayze is all shirtless and very tan and... You related to Baby, huh? I know. I so wanted to be Baby. I wanted to have my hair did like hers. I wanted to be romanced by Johnny Castle. So, you know, I had to talk about all of this stuff around the core of that story. Gotcha. You know, I had to have humor in there, too, because humor is my coping mechanism. Yes. That's my whole thing. Although, honestly, you know, the religious part of my upbringing, none of that was traumatizing. When I look back on some of this stuff, I'm like, okay, I can see where people might think some of these things are unusual. And anyway, I had other shit in my life that was actually legit traumatizing. But I'm winding back to my point with um, some of the humor in there. Some of the people are like, you know, you kind of remind me of David Sedaris. Yeah. I'm like, yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Very cool. And that was just my opportunity to flex. Nice. What else do you have on your list? I actually have David Sedaris on here. Oh, which one? Me talk pretty one day. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So, Me Talk Pretty One Day was the first Sedaris book I actually picked up. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And before I forget, uh, in Naked, he had a short story called Glenn's Homophobia Newsletter. 
And I first ran across that in an anthology of queer writers. This was before I picked up anything from Sedaris, like, whole book. Yeah. So when I ran across his name again, like, why is he familiar? Oh, he's funny. And then I picked up Naked, and then I saw that short story in there again. Nice. No, it was in Barrel Fever. But he had his um, newsletter of things that were homophobic that happened in his life. Some of the things were legit homophobic, but then some of these other things were just petty little peeves. (laughs) He's like, no, they did it because they're homophobic. Like his co-worker who made a really horrible lasagna. (gasps) He called it an ethnic slur covered in (laughs) tinfoil. That's hilarious. Yeah. So I picked up Me Talk Pretty one day, and I remember reading the learning curve in one of my English classes. And I'm like, oh my god, David Sedaris, that's an easy no-brainer. And this essay continues to be hilarious, because he's talking about how he bullshitted his way through a college writing instructor job, but he didn't know shit. Oh my gosh. Okay, maybe that's why degree bloat is a thing now. Thank you, David. (laughs) But he's talking about how he's trying to prime his students to become writers, but really he just makes them watch soap operas all day because he can catch up on his soaps. Nice. And then he kind of bullshits an assignment like, um, pick apart the plot structure, who are the characters? And then he's like, here, get some cigarettes so you can have some proper inspiration in order to be a writer. Great class. And then a couple of the students complain because like one of them had asthma. Oh yeah, here's the chapter. I made a note to bring in some ashtrays and then rooted around through the waste paper basket for a few empty cans. (laughs) This was during the smoking part. I mean, it's hilarious that he kind of um, bullshits his way through the job that he's in no way qualified. Gotcha. But it also kind of reminds me of sometimes the imposter syndrome I feel. Like when I do a job, I'm like, God, am I really truly qualified? Oh, fuck. Am I just bullshitting my way through like Sedaris did with his class? (laughs) Gotcha. Super relatable. Oh, and then um, one of my favorite essays is when he's talking about his sister, Amy. Oh, yeah. Are they on Instagram? Yes, they are. Okay, because I wanted to follow um, David on Twitter back when I was still Twittering, but he didn't have a Twitter. I don't know who she's tagging on there. If there's a third sibling, because I think I saw the there's names of There's a few siblings. There. Okay, so... The- there's one of them, the youngest, his name's Paul, but his nickname is Rooster, because every redneck family has someone named Rooster. It is a requirement. Maybe it's the younger brother she tags in her posts. Okay. But she'll go to thrift stores and find really obscure, funny items, and then she'll tag her sibling in it. I want Amy's life. Right? I worship Amy. She is totally my role model. She's hilarious. God, she's wonderful. You know, as I get older, I feel like maybe I should just start channeling my inner Amy Sedaris more. Yes. Because she's really taking aging in stride, too. And I look at her, and it's like, She still has that youthful energy about her, and she still, you know, has quirky taste in fashion, and she's not just hanging it up and getting boring and stayed just because she's not 25 anymore. But anyway, he talks about um, his sister Amy coming to visit, and his dad would always pick on the daughters, like if they're starting to get chubby or whatever. Yeah. And so what she did to come and visit, she gets um, half of a padded custom-made fatty suit, which she enjoys wearing beneath dirty sweatpants as tight and uninviting as sausage casings. <laughs> so she's got um, the half a fat suit and she uses that to greet their dad. Oh my god! That's kind of her revenge. And I think that might be the same one that she wears when she's Jerry Blank. <gasps> oh, I see. <laughs> so she greets them at the airport and the dad, like when she's um, out of earshot, he's like, what the hell happened to her? Christ almighty, this is killing me. I'm in real pain here. <laughs> and then what do they do? They either go to um, go to the house. Yeah, they go to the house. And so she grabs an economy-sized vat of mayonnaise and sticks a big spoon in there. And 
<laughs> and just eats it. Oh my <laughs> just to gosh. freak him the fuck out. And she's like, God, all I had on the plane were a couple of Danish. Can we go out for pancakes? Oh, no. <laughs> but I just really love his stories. And again, his thing is he can take like just regular, ordinary stuff and kind of find the humor in it. Yes. What's next on your list? You're going to want to censor me for this one, but I got to leave it in here because I have never laughed so hard as I laughed in this movie and with this book. Even though you're not supposed to. Oh, no. So the next one's Stephanie Meyer in the Twilight okay. series. Okay. okay I'm not going to censor you. You're not going to like this. Okay. Well, oh, I, no. Sabrina at ProcrastinationPlanet.com. There's no way... I'm not offended by the way people are raised or, or what they believe about others. But when it comes out in the writing, it cracks me up. And I can just go past it. It's, it's a stupid vampire movie, uh, series. Who cares? So in her books, I don't know if you read them or, or got into... I never really got into it. So you have vampires and you have werewolves. Mm -hmm. And we understand what each of these species are. In her particular world, the vampires are... It can be anyone. Mm -hmm. But it was the Collins family. Colon family. And then um, the werewolves. I don't know how it ended up, but all of the rare werewolves are Native American and they live on they live on the reservation. So that's fine. We have people with superpowers and we live out in the woods and we have this beautiful Oregon scenery. That's great. Let's move forward. She is in love with a vampire who cannot make out with her for too long because he might drink her blood and kill her. Okay? That is textbook predator animal. When he finds out that she has werewolves for friends, he sits her down and lectures her on how she could be ever be so stupid as to hang out with the violent sort. Oh, no. Yes, there is a lecture given to her for hanging out with werewolves. But if you read it, you can't help but feel, is she talking about the werewolves or is she talking about the fact that they live on the reservation? Oh, so you're thinking there might be some kind of racial implications there. I don't think she's racist. I just think that's how the writing came out, which to me was, wow, did no editor see this? Yeah, it's still worth a conversation. Yeah. And then... um. The main character on the reservation, who is a werewolf, who everyone is afraid of, they're not afraid of him because he's the big bad werewolf. They're afraid of him because he has a drinking problem. So she has an alcoholic Native American werewolf oh who lives on the reservation. How did I'm not making it up. It's in the book. I don't know how she got away with that. There's no sensitivity reader on board. There's nothing. No editor going, hey, maybe this sounds a little stereotypical. Yes. So the, the, the very violent guy, there's an arc where he has to get his wife to forgive him because she has a really big scar down her face because he got drunk and scarred her while a werewolf but he was a werewolf he wasn't a human at the time he was a werewolf on the reservation when he scarred up her face so that story exists in this so i'm, I'm like how is that going to end up on the screen oh, so no. i go to watch the movie and sure enough it's just did you ever watch la bamba oh my god i love that movie do you remember the older brother yeah the drunken older brother oh my god the the werewolf is that guy not um si morales but that character His 
his character was lifted from Isai Morales' character. Yes, I think that's what it was. I think maybe she watched La Bamba back in the day, was traumatized by it, and this was her expelling her demons was by writing this Isai Morales character in the body of a werewolf who has to ask his wife for forgiveness and she has a big scar down her face that no one talks about because he was a werewolf at the time. He didn't know. Oh my God. That happened in her story. So that was funny to you. This is hilarious to me. I'm, I'm not even at the most at the funniest part yet. Okay. And meanwhile, she has a family who drink blood to survive. Nothing's wrong with them. They're perfectly normal, caring people. Let's fast forward to the final battle. And you have to be where I was, sitting next to my friend Stacy at the movie theater. There are vampires all over the world, all walks of life. They show up there and they're all in like designer couture clothes. And it's snowing outside. So they're showing up dressed like cute little fur bunnies and all that kind of stuff because they're going to battle against the ancient vampires. And the reason why our Twilight gang have been singled out is because they had a baby. She was still human when she got pregnant. Mm -hmm. So it's a half-breed baby and those aren't allowed because you have to be full vampire. You can't be a vampire child. So the ancients have come to kill the baby. Oh no. And the doctor father, he actually went on a quest and he said, I am here to tell you that half-vampire babies will grow up and be strong and help our vampire community. And I have brought a representative to show you. So we went from uncomfortable laughter to now... Shit in my pants laughter, basically, because the representative was a half vampire, half human from the Brazilian rainforest. And it is 2007 Oregon. And he walks out into the snow wearing a loincloth with no shoes. And everyone else is fully clothed except this asshole. 2007. (laughs) So he tells his story about how a vampire found his mother in the jungle. They mated He drank from her blood, made her immortal. She gave birth to the half-vampire baby. And they've been living for the past 300 years as immortals. And he's fine being half-human. And he has never betrayed his vampire kind. But he could not explain why. He was wearing a loincloth with no shoes in the middle of Oregon in the 2000s. They wrote this, Carly. I laughed so hard (laughs) that the teenagers in the movie theater didn't know what was going on. Stacy's like trying to put her hand up. Your laughter's a sonic weapon. Yes, I was. I'm like, does anyone see what I'm seeing? We have everyone, black, brown, everything, dressed head to toe in actual snow gear because they're out in the middle of the snow. But when they have the Native American representative show up from the Brazilian rainforest, he's naked wearing nothing but a loincloth, no shoes. That's a naked Indian guy in the Wayne's World sequel. Yes. (laughs) So this is Stephanie Meyer. That's how her brain works. But for some reason, she passed all the editors. She passed everyone who was working on the film and that made it onto the screen. Watch the battle on YouTube to see that clip and tell me if you don't shit yourself when you see that asshole walk out dressed like that. I think we have more bonus content for this episode, Paige. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason why that was funny to me, it's laughable. Like, like it, I laughed at it thinking, oh my God, that's stupid. I can't believe she, she actually wrote it like that and didn't see that it was problematic. I have laughed like I've never laughed. It was a hearty laugh. Like I let a lot go (laughs) during that movie. And it's like 300 years on this earth to do whatever Mm -hmm. you want. And he never got a pair of shoes. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's what I did at the movie theater. Maybe he has really calloused feet. And like the full-blooded vampires have baby skin feet. 
I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's got hillbilly hooves like me. Oh my gosh. It's it's you crying, laughing. And so Oh no. Yes. I'm actually as soon as I get home, I'm gonna send you the clip of this so you could see how everyone else was dressed and how this guy came out okay, yeah, dressed. Yeah, send that to I me. You have this look on your face like that didn't happen. I can't believe you're exaggerating. You're gonna see this clip and you're gonna realize they did it exactly like that. I'm gonna wish I had a depends. Yes, exactly. So it, it was funny from not being funny, but it came out <laughs> funny. What's the one on your next that's probably not as problematic as what I just shared? I'm gonna go with where'd you go, Bernadette? They just made a movie about that with Kate Blanchett. Ooh, I know what I'm going to be seeing. Yes, do tell because I haven't read it. Okay. Oh my God. It's a wonderful book. I swear I read it in like one sitting, but it's told in a semi-epistolary format. Okay. There's some straight narrative, like from the daughter's point of view. The rest of it is told in like a series of letters, emails, etc. Okay. And Bernadette lives in Seattle. She's kind of isolated from the rest of the community. And there's this phenomenon called the Seattle Freeze. The Seattle Freeze is where if you're not from Seattle, you kind of get shut out of the mix. Oh, wow. And people will be like, oh, are you doing anything this weekend? Well, not really. I haven't. I'm kind of new here. I haven't met anyone. Okay. Well, have a good weekend. But they don't invite you anywhere. And it's wow, like really insular. Yeah. So she kind of feels the effects of it. And also she has really shitty neighbors like those um, parents who pick up the kids at school at pickup time. Oh, yeah. It's really super competitive to try and get just the right spot in front of the school. And there's all sorts of these hilarious exchanges. And Bernadette is in extreme conflict with um, her neighbor, Audrey. Bernadette's house is on top of this hill. Audrey's house is at the bottom, and she really hates these blackberries that have kind of infiltrated her property. Oh, no. But the blackberries are kind of the sources up the hill where Bernadette is. And Audrey is like, well, you need to rip all these blackberries out because they're invasive and blah, blah, blah. And you're being a bad neighbor. And she kind of bullies her and nags her into getting rid of all those blackberry bushes. So Bernadette complies. She's trying to be a good neighbor. She has all of the blackberries ripped out from the roots. But the thing about roots and soil... The function of roots is to hold all that soil together. And you know how rainy it is in Seattle? Yeah. So erosion plus Seattle rain equals big fucking mudslide all into Audrey's house. Oh, no. That's what she gets for being a cunt. She gets a mudslide. (laughs) And I cackled. I so cackled at that scene. Because it's like, you're not minding your own business. You can just kind of cut back all the Blackberry shit as it comes through. Yeah. But the rest of that property, that ain't your property. Shut the fuck up. (sighs) And then she starts complaining about the whole mudslide thing. It's like, well, you asked for it because it's erosion. Just the -the over-the-topness of how awful these people are cracks me up. And there's also this thing where she has a virtual assistant, and that ends up going completely awry. Oh, wow. Since it's now a movie that's coming out, I guess I shouldn't spoil any of that. I think some of the stuff that makes me laugh is I always have to laugh at upper class twits. Gotcha. And like upper class suburban kind of twits. That's why I like the first couple of seasons of Desperate Housewives. (laughs) I just love the over the top behavior of like really snotty uptight people. Yeah. I just like watching uptight people get all squirmy. It really makes me laugh. I don't like regular everyday people being put in cringy situations. That just makes me feel bad for them. Yeah. But if someone is really shitty, I love watching them get dunked. Gotcha. But I do recommend you reading Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Where Did You Go, Bernadette? What is it with the sunglasses? Because they emphasize that on the um, in the film as well. The, You'll the trailer find for the out. movie. Okay. Where'd you go, Bernadette? Maria Semple. 
Oh, look, and your friend, Jonathan Franzen, endorsed it. Jonathan Franzen can eat my dirty butthole. (laughs) Ah, dude. What else do you have on your list? You don't have anything on your list? I think it's your turn. I I came up with three because I thought those stories were hilarious. I don't actually have one as funny as the one you just did. Do you have something edgy for us? Well, I have a hashtag problematic fave. Go for it. And your problematic fave is going to be one of our Patreon bonus episodes. So my hashtag problematic fave is from Florence King. This one is Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady. The title inspired Confessions of a Failed Preacher's Daughter. (laughs) Oh, wow. And she's somebody, I really hate her politics, but also she's a funny bitch. Gotcha. Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady. She's basically the product of a very tomboyish mother. She was born like during World War II. And her mother was super tomboyish. Her father was an English intellectual. Super incompatible. I kind of think they were both bearding for each other. Gotcha. That's my hypothesis there. And they were living in Virginia. And her granny is kind of this wannabe Southern belle. But really the whole Southern belle thing, like the plantations and shit, that was like deep south. Her dad was kind of talking about how the Southern Bell archetype came to be. Yeah. His theory is that um, the United States is really super Protestant, so you don't really have any goddesses. Gotcha. Like in Catholicism, you would have the Virgin Mary. Yeah. And that's kind of the closest thing to a goddess you would really have. In Protestantism, they kind of devalue and demote Virgin Mary. Yeah. You don't have a goddess per se. And there's really no pagan roots to go on either, because like European countries, they were, um, even the Protestant ones, they were pagan before that. So you kind of had some goddesses there. And so they kind of had to invent their own goddesses. Some of the female archetypes they came up with were like the Southern Belle, and then also movie stars. Her mama, the very foul-mouthed, (laughs) chain-smoking tomboy, was like, we don't need any goddamn goddesses from over there. They called Jean Harlow the American Venus, and now they're saying the same thing about Jane Russell. Americans can invent anything. And then her dad is like, ah, you hit the key to all of this. American women do have to invent their own female ideas. That's why there are so many counterfeit versions of femininity, like the Southern Belle. And one of um, Florence's cousins, it was Evelyn. She's kind of being molded by Granny and, and her sister into this like Southern Belle kind of archetype. She kind of leans into like the so-called female hysteria. Granny is very obsessed with the gynecological stuff. Mm. Like she's, um, Evelyn has the Upton womb. Her womb is falling out. And there's this horrible cringeworthy scene where Evelyn thinks her womb is falling out and she has to grab a pickle jar and she's squatting oh over that to God. catch it. <laughs> it's so horrible. Goodness. She has the Upton womb. And then her sister's like, no, she has the Cunningham taint. As in she's, um, tainted in the head, touched in the head, as in she's got the nut jobbery. And it's like they are trying to have some sort of ownership over this woman's femininity oh my gosh yeah that sounds funny and it's fucking awful and crazy florence king turns out to be a lesbian but also she kind of wants i think she's more bisexual but leans a lot strongly towards lesbianism she was like a conservative lesbian feminist is what she called herself and she talks about how she just wants to have an experience of fucking a guy and she sets out to do this and it's really hard for her to do this because this is the 50s by this time and she's in college and all the guys They think she's a nice girl, so they won't just smash with her. And she's like, I don't want to do this fucking dating thing. It's stupid. I just want to get fucked and call it done. (laughs) And so finally, she she fucks one of her professors when she's in, um, I think it's grad school. But back in the day, she had to get fitted for a diaphragm 
Yeah, they had to have the diaphragm. I might have to link to some diaphragms. Okay. (laughs) And so there's this whole thing that they had to do back then. You had to, like, put in the spermicidal jelly, put in the diaphragm, put in more spermicidal jelly. And six hours afterwards, you had to douche. You had to take out the diaphragm, wash it. And then you had to douche again. That's how much they hated kids. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'm going to go through all this so I don't get knocked up. And she shared a bedroom and a bathroom with her grandma at home. Yikes. Yeah. So there's this scene where she's talking about how she has to tote all of these adultery things around. And she's like, where would I keep the douchebag, the jelly, the diaphragm? Granny and I had separate bureaus, but we still shared a room. I had to masturbate in the bathtub. How can I open a drawer and pull out a douchebag? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And then she's like, okay, wait. If by some chance she happened to see it... I would claim a minor gynecological ailment, something virginal like an itch, and say the school nurse had recommended douching. Because this was the 50s where douching was still considered normal. And douching fucks up the good bacteria too, so it's a good way to get yeast infections. What the fuck is douching? Oh my god. Douching is where... Because back in the day, I mean, people still have hang-ups about the vagina. So back in the day... People thought that a woman's sexy parts were inherently filthy and like, oh my God, I have vaginal odor. No, pussy smells like pussy, okay? And they would recommend like douching. It's like you you have this um, solution, usually vinegar and water, and you have to squirt it up your twat in order to supposedly clean it. So back to the Southern lady. (laughs) (laughs) So she said, okay, I could blame the itch on chlorine in the college pool. Granny could never remember the difference between chlorine and fluoride, and all the daughters, daughters of the Confederacy, were against fluoridation. (laughs) And so then there's this scene where she has to douche at night, and basically these douchebags, you didn't have like the one-and-done Massengill kits back in the day. You had like this reusable rubber bag with the big hose, and you had to put it on a big old clothes hook or something, and... Her granny walked in on her. She's taking a douche. And she's like, I have the Upton crud. Wow. (laughs) So you're sharing this because this book traumatized you when you read it, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it cracked me the fuck up. Some of her other essay books, I mean, they can be pretty funny. But I think if I read them today, I'd be like, nope, canceled. Gotcha. But she's like one of the few conservative intellectuals out there. I'd like to think that she would fucking hate Trump today. She passed away quite a few years ago. Oh, okay. In one of her books about the joys of misanthropy, (laughs) she's talking about how she would never live in a senior home. People talk about, oh, well, you gotta, you don't want to die alone and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I would rather rot on my own floor than be found by a bunch of bingo players. (laughs) By a bunch of bingo players. That's hilarious. So her thing is she wants to die alone. Oh, goodness. I would love to think that she would hate Trump because she is very much an intellectual. Yeah. I mean, I don't hold out hope. But hashtag problematic faith. But <laughs> Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady is... It's it's worth a read. You just have to keep in mind that... It was the 50s. These people were a product of their place and time. Yes. It's definitely a memoir that cracked me the fuck up. But the title inspired my title. Nice. So... So funny authors, funny books. Yeah. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. Not we at might all. do a sequel if we... This is us just chatting about some things that made us laugh. Yeah. We could do funny books too, Electric Boogaloo. Exactly. 
Okay, people, if you like our podcast, don't forget to rate and review. Five-star rating and a quick review will help to push us up the charts. Don't forget to like, subscribe, download, share links to your social media, let other people discover us. At some point, we might get a MailChimp list going so we can get email addresses if you would like to have our newsletter. Once we get around to writing a newsletter in all of our spare time, mm-hmm. you can go to procrastinationplanet.com and find our Patreon link. If you click the donate button, you can also click the merch button on there and get yourself some sweet logo merch. All the cool kids are doing it. <laughs> Peer pressure, man. I think that does it. I'm Carly Knight. And I'm Sabrina Monet. And this is Procrastination Planet. Thank you. Good night. Good night. And thank you for putting up with my horse voice. Procrastination Planet has been written and produced by me, Carly Knight, and my partner in crime, Sabrina Monet. Our logo was designed by Sea Trojan of Sea Trojan Art. For more of his work, go to seatrojanart.com. Our theme music is Laser Unicorns by Christian Penn, courtesy of Gemendo Licensing. Visit us at procrastinationplanet.com. Follow us on Twitter at ProcrastPlanet. Follow us on Instagram at ProcrastinationPlanetPodcast. If you like us, tell your friends and spread the word. If you hate us, lie and tell your friends how much you like us anyway. We could use the publicity.